Hello, this is David Keel. I'd like to welcome you to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on October 14th, 2010. Tonight we continue our study of the Book of Romans, looking at one of my favorite chapters of the book, the 12th chapter. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 25. Romans, 12th chapter. This is probably my favorite chapter in the Book of Romans. There are a couple of verses in Romans 8, which I like, obviously. Uh, Romans 8, 28, and then Romans 8, 37 through 39, where it talks about nothing can separate us from God. And, then, and there's other verses that I like, but as far as a, a whole chapter is concerned, I like Romans 12. And I guess because it's just some of the teachings Paul has in there, I think are just good. Now, so that's where we're going to pick it up tonight uh, at Romans 12. If I can find out where my notes begin. I'm up to 190-something pages of notes here. There we go. <laughs> now, many commentators look at the book of Romans as, as basically being divided into two or three sections. They look at basically Romans 1 through 8 or 1 through 11 as being Paul's theology. Others look at 1 through 8 as being his theology, 9, 10, and 11 being a sidebar where Paul talks about the Jews specifically and their role in things. And then they look at verses 12 through, I mean, chapter, chapter 12 through about, about halfway through 15 as being Paul's practical Christianity. And they look at the first half as being his theology and the second half as being his practical application. I don't look at it that way. Because as, as I look at the Bible as, as a whole, I don't think that you really can separate our theology from the, from, our, from the practice of our lives. Or really, we shouldn't separate our theology from the practice of our lives. So I guess I'm saying that there's no such thing as practical theology. Which seminaries used to teach, by the way. They used to have a department of practical theology. And a lot of seminaries have actually changed that name. They don't, they don't call it that now. Uh, and practical theology is where they, they took seminary students and taught them such things as um, how to deal with, with conflict, uh, how to deal with church structure, how to deal with budgets, and, and all, those, all those practical issues of, of being in charge of a church. Because the majority, well, maybe not majority, a large number of seminary graduates, particularly who leave to go into the pastorate, probably will wind up in a church to where they're pretty much it. You know, mo most churches are, are not nearly the size of ours, where you have a multiple staff members. Quite often you will have a pastor and maybe a pastor and a music guy, maybe a pastor and a music and education guy, but the pastor is still looked at as kind of being the guy in charge of everything. So they used to have courses in seminary which teach them more of the, the business side of a church. But I don't look at it as trying to separate theology from, from practice. I really don't. The way in which we live our lives day to day, regardless of what we do or, or where we are when we're doing it, should be fleshing out our theology. It really should. Our lives should reflect our beliefs. It should reflect the way we feel the, about God. The, the, it should, what, what we say, what we do, our actions, our attitudes, all should reflect our basic theology. Looking at theology as being the study of God, our relationship with God. In other words, our beliefs and our practice should be in agreement. Should be in agreement. Now, I think we all can understand what Paul says in the 7th chapter of the 19th verse when he says, listen, the good that I desire to do, I don't do. But the evil that I desire not to do, that's what I do. 
And that's what he talks about in that seventh chapter. Remember, this, this conundrum he gets himself into of, of desiring to do good with his mind, but his body's yielding to sinful things. And so he does evil things, where he, although he desires good things. And it's the struggle that he has within him between the, the flesh and the spirit, as he talks about. And so, yeah, we do also come to that. But practically speaking, <laughs> our, our lives should reflect our theology and what we do. So. We pick it up there with chapter 12. So uh, this is, to me, is just a continuation of Paul. This is not like Paul saying, okay, I've told you all all about the theology and, and the theory of God in our relationship. Now I'm going to tell you the practical side of it. No, I think Paul is just simply flowing right along with his letter here. And also remember then originally there were no chapter breaks. You know, as far as Paul's letter was concerned, this would just be one more turn in the, in the papyrus of the scroll. They would just go right on, you know. Pick it up, all right, chapter, uh, chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, therefore, there's that therefore again, which Paul has used a couple of times in this book. Therefore, Paul again uses this therefore, or I think the NIV says, and so. I think that's the way it starts off. Therefore, I urge you. The New English translation, I think, says, and so. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he says, okay, guys, you, you've heard all my teachings up to this point. He says, so now, therefore, what does all that mean? In other words, what he is going to teach is a natural result of what he has just taught. Okay, it's like, yada, 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 therefore, okay, so what is this yada, yada, yada that he just taught? Well, going back and look at the first 11 chapters, he's taught that we're all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. Remember, the Jews don't have a hall pass when it comes to God's judgment. Just because they were the chosen people and they had the law and they had the prophets and they had the protection of God and they had, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't separate them from the consequences of their sin. So, we're all sinners, Romans 3.23. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve to die because of our sin. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. There are no exemptions here. God, out of His great love for us, and by his undeserved mercy and grace, has provided a sacrifice for us, Jesus Christ his Son, to pay the penalty, which is the just requirement for our sin. We all have sinned, we all desire to die, but God out of his great mercy and out of his grace has provided a sacrifice that will exempt us from having to suffer the consequences of that sin. By accepting God's merciful sacrifice through, through faith... We are made righteous and are justified, that's that means declared not guilty, and brought into a relationship with God. And these are all what he's taught here, primarily in verses in chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 8, we are his children, joint heirs of Christ. He talks about that. Or we have been sanctified, made holy, set apart to live for God. Again, in chapter 8, he talks about that. We are called to become like his son. Chapter 8, 29. We have, a, we have eternal life and receive the glory of being God's children. Chapter 6 and chapter 8 again. So these are all the things that, that, God, that Paul has already talked about. The fact that, yes, because of, the, of Adam's action in the Garden of Eden, he brought sin into the world which brought death to all mankind. And yes, we do not deserve it. Yes, we, do not, uh, we cannot earn it, this salvation that we have. But because of God's mercy, because of his great grace and love for us and because of the sacrifice which was provided by, by Jesus Christ and his death 
we have this new relationship, this new position with God. We have peace with God, Romans 5. We have this, this new relationship with God, Romans 8, as being a child of God. And we have this new eternity. They're receiving the full glory as even Christ was glorified, again in, in Romans 8. So this is what he's taught up to this point. And, and we receive this by faith, not by works. It's all received by faith. Therefore, he says, if you've listened to everything I've said up to now, therefore, we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, he says in, in verse 1. I urge you, urge you, which basically is just a strong urging, Paul. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of the great mercies of God, because of all that I've taught you, which has come to us because of the mercy of God, salvation, justification, righteousness, all these things which we have because of the mercies of God. I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, sacrifices was something that both Jew and Gentiles would, would be quite familiar with. In fact, sacrifices were found throughout all your pagan, even your pagan religions going all the way back. Sacrifices was kind of a normal response of mankind to God's, plural, small letter G. So both Gentile and Jew would be familiar with that term, sacrifices. Now specifically in the Jews' case, where they were instructed to go through sacrifices unto the one God, Yahweh, and these sacrifices were usually the, the killing of an animal, a firstborn, uh, unblemished animal, and this was to help appease the gods, was what was quite often done in the, in the heathen religions. So sacrifice was something that these people would be very familiar with, but Paul is taking it to a different level here. When he says, present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. He's not saying that we should go out and find a lamb that's without blemish and sacrifice. That's not what he's saying. He said, listen, we need to sacrifice our very bodies. And what he's saying there basically is our very lives. It should be a sacrifice. He's taking it to this different level. Paul is saying that because of what God has done for us and because of our response to him in faith, God now basically, he's our master. He owns us. Turn back to the sixth chapter. Flip back to the sixth chapter of Romans. Because I want us to look at these verses. We are now slaves of righteousness. This is the sixth chapter where he talks about we used to be slaves to sin. Now we're slaves of righteousness. Look at verses eight, look at verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We were freed from sin by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We used to be a slave to sin. Now with this new newness we have in Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, this new creation which we are in Christ, we're now slaves to righteousness. And just as we used to present our bodies to satisfy our sinful desires, when we were slaves to sin, we now present our bodies to godly things. Look at the 16th verse. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one to whom... You obey either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So we should present our bodies, he talks about in, in that chapter. He should, not that particular verse, but in that chapter he talks about presenting our bodies. Because we are slaves of righteousness. And this results in our sanctification, being made holy, being set apart in the God. Look at verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, he is our new master, you derive the benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, which is eternal life. So this is what Paul is saying. Because of what God has done and provided for us, and because of our response 
in faith to that great gift of grace and mercy from God, we are now enslaved to God or should be enslaved to God. We are now slaves of righteousness. We have been sanctified, which basically means to be holy, to be set apart. Our faith in the mercy of God should result in our total surrender, our total sacrifice to God. This is what he means when he says when he's talking about sacrificing our bodies. Now, I think he means literally living sacrifice. Now, here he doesn't mean you know let's go split our throats and bleed on the altar. Here he's talking living sacrifice, but he's but he's talking about our physical bodies. What we do with our physical bodies should be done to the glory of God. The desires of our physical body should be subjugated to the desires of God. It should be sacrificed. Our will should be sacrificed to the will of God. Our desires should be sacrificed to the desires of God. What we do with our bodies, basically he's saying, you know, if you get right down to it, just as a slave was practically not in charge of their own bodies because the master could do whatever he wished with a slave. A slave was nothing more than a tool or an instrument or a piece of property. And if, a, if, if an owner wanted to go out and you know take a baseball bat and hit a slave, he could because the slave was of no value. It was, he was totally surrendered to the master. The slave's body was not his own. It belonged to the master who could direct it and control it and do what he wanted to with it. We are now slaves to righteousness. Paul says our bodies should be a living and holy sacrifice unto God. And this decision to choose, <laughs> I use my words deliberately here, this decision of ours that we make to freely choose to surrender our bodies, our will to God's will, is a spiritual act of worship. That's what he says there in that verse, in that first verse. Going back again to Romans 12. A living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And this, the Greek word there is, is logikos, or logikos, or, or logikos, which if you look at it, it's a derivation of where we get our words logical from. L-O-G-I-K-O-S. Logikos. And it basically means to reason. What the scriptures interpreting here with the, when it says the word spiritual. NIV says... Spiritual act of worship. Again, I think that the New English translation says the reasonable act of worship. Now, this is what Paul is talking about here, I think, when he uses this word. When he talks about this, this word, which means to reason. Paul is saying that our worship should be spiritual, or, in other words, it should be something that we do out of reason, uh, with forethought, with purpose, with desire. Uh, it's something that we do on purpose. It's something that we have thought about. We have logically come to the conclusion that we should worship because of all this that God has done for us, provided for us. We should sacrifice our bodies. That is a logical thing for us to do in response to what God has done for us. That's basically what he's saying here. In other words, our worship should not be what Isaiah reports as God describing back in the 29th chapter of Isaiah. And I want us to turn back there. Isaiah 29. Verse 13, and this, this, this verse also was, was quoted by Jesus. When Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, he called them hypocrites. He says, you are alike, and he quotes this verse from Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service. Lip service. 
Now, even in the modern English, it means the same thing it did a thousand or so years ago. Giving lip service to something is basically mean you're just, yeah, 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 okay. You know, there's, there's no meaning behind it. You may be saying, yeah, all right, I agree with that, but you don't really agree with that. You're just giving lip services. You're just saying the words. They have no meaning behind it. You haven't even really thought about it. They give me lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. Their heart is not in their worship, says the Lord. Your worship is just lip service, and your heart is not in it. And their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. Uh, And again, I don't know if you're familiar with that word rote, R-O-T-E, which basically means something done from memory, something done from habit. It's just done by rote. There's no thought into it. There's no heart into it. It's just a tradition. They, they worshiping because it was their habit. It was their tradition. Not because they really desired to worship, or not because they went with a desire to worship. Paul is saying that by making a living sacrifice of our bodies, by surrendering our lives in obedience to God, we are worshiping Him with a reasonable, spiritual, thoughtful worship that is acceptable to God. And the Greek word, therefore, the acceptable is you arresto which comes from two words, which a lot of the Greek words do, EU, which means well, and oresko, which means to please. So this worship, Paul says, is well-pleasing to God. This is what, this type of worship, this type of worship to where it is a, a, a spiritual worship. It is something that, that we desire to do. It's not something we do it because we just always done it. It is, we have a desire to, to go to God and to worship because of all that God is and all that He's done for us. And one of the ways we do this is by surrendering our lives to Him in gratitude and in response to His great love for us. We present our bodies as a living and holy, set-apart, sanctified sacrifice, a surrender, which is acceptable to God, is well-pleasing to God. Because this is our spiritual worship to Him. This is what Paul is saying. A worship and a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. Okay, reading now, verse 2, 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And not only our bodies, says Paul, but also our minds, our thoughts, our response to all that God has done. Therefore, he says, remember, he's saying, so therefore, this should be our response. We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice and our minds. This response that we have to all that God has done, to this great mercy which God has shown us, should affect our bodies, which are our actions, And it should also affect our minds, which are our thoughts or our intellect. Both should be in response to what God has done. Now Paul warns us that we should not be conformed to this world or conformed to this age. Some translations use the word age there. In fact, the the literal Greek is more often translated age instead of world. Basically, it's, it's essentially the same meaning. Conformed. Sushimatsio is the Greek word there, okay? Which comes from sum, S-U-M, which means together with, and shimatsio, which means to fashion. So what Paul is saying is, is we should not 
allow our lives to be fashioned, to be molded, to be shaped like everybody else's life in this world or this age. Now this is different, a Greek word here, different for conformed than is used over in 829 when it says we're called to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That Greek word means an internal transformation. This Greek word means an external, to be molded or shaped. That was he basically, Paul is saying, we should not be conformed to this world. Our lives should not look like this world on the outward appearance. Our actions should not be like everybody else's actions in this world. We should not be conformed to this age. Sushimatsuyo. We're not to allow our lives to be molded into the patterns and the actions of this world. But, he says, rather than that, we're to be transformed. And the Greek word here is used as metamorpho, which should initially bring to mind the English word metamorphosis. Meta means a change of condition, and morpho means to form. So it's a, basically it's a change of condition or form. It's a transformation. It's transformed, changed, to change one's form. We're to be transformed, changed, to morph our lives different from this world. That's what he's saying here. We're not to be pressed into the mold of this world, which J.B. Phillips is one of his famous, famous quotes. We're not to be pressed into the mold of this world, but we're to be transformed. We're to be different. We're to be metamorphosized into something different than what this world is. And how do we do this? By the renewing of our minds. Ana keinosios is the Greek word there. Ana meaning again, and keino, which means to make new. So it's to make new again. It's to renew, to remake. A renewing that makes a person different than previously. Different than the person they used to be. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's how we're going to transform our lives. That's how we're going to prevent our lives from being conformed to this age. We're going to do that by the renewing of our minds, by the, by the changing of our minds from something different than it used to be. And the used to be he's talking about is before Christ. When he talked about it in that sixth chapter about we're no longer slaves to sin. We are a new creation. We are now slaves to Christ. We're now slaves to righteousness. We're no longer under the, the control of sin. We now should be under the control of God. Now we do still have a sinful nature. And we do still have the desires for those sinful things. And we still can be tempted in that sense. But we're not the same. We can now resist sin by the power of God. And we do this by the renewing of our mind. He said, that's how we're going to transform our lives. That's how we're going to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. We are not to live like the rest of the world, by this world's standards, by this world's goals, by this world's objectives. Instead, as a result of God's mercy, we are to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, our thoughts, and by sacrificing our bodies, our wills, to God. And by doing this, he says in that second verse, we will prove what the will of God is. The Greek word is dokimos, which means to test. He says if we do this, 
if we transform our lives by the renewing of our minds and sacrifice our bodies, we will prove, we will test the will of God and show it to be real. Show the true nature of the will of God by testing it, by proving it. We will prove by testing out what God's will is. And that will, he says, is good, agathos, which means excellent, beneficial, useful. Now think about that. He's talking about the will of God for our lives. He says the will of God, we will prove it. We will, we will show the true nature of God's will for our lives, which is good, excellent, beneficial, useful. It is acceptable. You arrestos, the same word he used a few minutes ago when he says our worship was acceptable to God. He says God's will is acceptable to us. It is, it is well-pleasing to us. And he says we will prove, we will test it and prove that God's will is perfect. Teleios, which means complete, finished, lacking nothing. That's what he's talking about in these two verses. Tremendous verses. We're to sacrifice our bodies, our lives, our wills to God as a response for what we have received by faith through His grace and mercy. And we're to transform our lives, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And we do that by, by having our mindset differently than it used to be. And he talks about that all through the seventh chapter. Our mindset should be on spiritual things. It should be on God. It should not be on the other the things which the world has this mindset on. Our goals, our objectives, our our desires should be different than the worldly goals, objectives, and desires. Because we're different. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves to righteousness. This is what he's saying here. I want to read these verses from Peterson's The Message. Listen. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You are sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of maturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That should be the way we start every day, guys. That should be the first action we take in the mornings. I've told you before that it is my belief that if, if our surrender, if our conscious surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Master, if that conscious decision is older than 24 hours, I believe it's weakening. And that is why I try every day of my life during my quiet time in the morning to make that actual statement or to at least to express that attitude 
That is why in my prayer, every, every Bible study I end, I use those words, my Savior and my Lord. That is making a, a statement about my attitude toward this person called Jesus Christ, who is my Savior, who died on the cross for me, who because of His death, burial, and resurrection, I do have eternal life. I have been sanctified, justified, reconciled. I am righteous before God. But He's also my Lord. And as my Lord, He has control of me. He has control of my body. He has control of my will. I subject my will to Him. And I think that's a decision we need to make every day. To take our ordinary lives, our going to sleep, our waking, our working, our walking around lives, our going to school lives, our, our whatever we're doing lives, and place it before God as a sacrifice, as an offering. Say, God, here I am. Take me. Use me for your glory. Take my mind, my thoughts, and use them for your glory. Renew, refresh my mind. And I will prove. You, you, you will prove. You will prove to the people around you what the will of God is. That which is good. That which is, is beneficial. That which is useful. That which is excellent. That which is, is, is acceptable. It's, it's, it's pleasing. That which is the best thing for us. That which is perfect for us. Because it comes from a perfect God. Therefore, Paul says, if you believe all of this that I've taught, if you have entered into this relationship with Jesus Christ, if you now stand before God as a child to Abba Father, if you have received His mercy, accepted His grace, have been forgiven for your sins, therefore, we should present our bodies and our minds and our lives and our wills to the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Pray with me. Father, these are such powerful words. And it comes from the heart of a man who was sold out to you. Help us, Father, to, to feel the passion that Paul has behind these words. May that be our passion. May our desire be to, to literally be a living sacrifice for you. God, help us to take our will, our desires, and to place them aside and, and look to you for your will. Give us your desires, Father. God, I, I thank you in, in the midst of our rebellion and our stubbornness and our selfishness. When we turn away from you, when we refuse you, yet you still love us. And you're still there when we come to our senses and turn back to you with repentant hearts. Help us, Father, to live every moment of every day as an offering to our God who has loved us, who has mercy and grace poured out upon us, who has forgiven us, and who desires to fellowship with us. Thank you, Father. May this week be a week 
that we live with renewed minds as an offering unto you so that others may truly see Jesus in us. Thank you, Father. For this is my prayer, in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, my Savior, and my Lord, and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. Thank you for being with us tonight, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email. My address is David L. Keel at gmail.com. Hope you can be with us next week and we'll finish up the 12th chapter and be going through a series of just rapid-fire teachings from Paul, which are just absolutely tremendous and ones that we need to hear and to listen to. So until next week, it is my prayer that may we live our lives this week as a holy and spiritual sacrifice surrendered unto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Until then, may God bless.